theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaquia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Joy. Good morning, Dr. Amy. You know, I'm a little under the weather, so I have my radio voice. I have my deep radio voice today. So that should make good for the podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we will have another one, another person on here today who may also have a deep voice. So you can uh -huh. kind of match your, your tenor and your baritone together. We're going to be talking about mentorship and mentees and sponsorship and that is really kind of new to me mm -hmm. this idea of mentorship and sponsorship and it's really fascinating because I've heard about it just recently in the business world right and I think you'd be great at it and I think maybe just the terms are new to you because I think you definitely fit this profile too you know and so often we don't assign these roles to ourselves, but we are definitely mentors. You are definitely a student mentor, right? Whether you do it informally or formally, and then how do you turn that into sponsorship? You know, I've had the privilege where I've been able to do that. So I'm interested in hearing about our guest experience and how to do that because it's extremely rewarding, especially as an educator, and there's tons of opportunities for educators to get involved in uh, student mentorship and sponsorship. Well, absolutely. And when we think about sponsor, I always think about it in terms of monetary sponsorship for a program or an event, but this takes it and provides some ownership. We don't see ourselves so much as in that role. And so I am excited about introducing Fred Geeky today. He began his educational career over 15 years ago while as a director of an after school program and summer program for the 100 Black men of Indianapolis with a mission to empower those who are often marginalized. As an educator, he modeled and set high expectations for his students and encouraged each of them to stretch higher than they thought possible. In his 15-year teaching career, he has had the privilege to teach at public, charter, and private schools. Within the last five years, he has served in an administrative leadership role as vice president at Providence Cristo Ray High School, where he is a liaison between corporate America and urban education by providing opportunities for high school students to have meaningful work experiences. Fred has been featured nationally for his work with a male mentoring initiative called The Barbershop, where he offers free haircuts to male students. Through a haircut, Fred establishes character development and empowerment with the focus on educating and retaining males to graduate and make an impact in the communities that they serve. Fred attended Kentucky State University where he received his BA degree in public administration. He also holds a Master of Arts in Teaching degree and Building Leadership Certificate from Marion University. In addition, Fred has received recognition from Junior Achievement of Central Indiana as Indian, Indy's Best and Brightest in Education, 
Kentucky State University alumni, 40 under 40, and Indianapolis Business Journal, 40 under 40. But let's mention the most important job you have is being married with your three children. And you'll find those children on LinkedIn right alongside you, right? Yes, you would. Yeah. Welcome to our podcast. And please correct my pronunciation of your last name. Yes. And please, I would love, before we get into the conversation, I'd love to know the origin, but welcome Dr. Frederick Eke. And I love Frederick. I don't know if you like prefer Fred or Frederick. My brother is Frederick. And of course, everyone calls my brother Fred, but I call him Frederick. Yeah. You know what? I'm fine with either or. My mother calls me Frederick. People call me Fred because it's my name, but I'll respond to Fred or Frederick. Either way is fine. And the correct pronunciation of my name is like yay and a key. So it's yay key. Yay key. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we have to do that bio all over <laughs> so we can say yay, yay key. That's okay. That's Love all right. So, I appreciate so, so it. Talk about the origin of that name because it's a very interesting name. Yes, it is. I've done some research on it. Like most people who are African-American, I, I, I tried to trace back as far as the origin or the name goes. So I am named where my name comes from my father and my father took the name from his mother. His mother, her name was Emma Yankee and she got the name from her stepfather. So I'm not really Yankee, but it just was passed down. But the name has origin from our research. It comes from late England. So when we go back and look at some of the census, um, there were Yankees in Michigan, Yankee in Kentucky, but it came over and the name was changed a little bit. Let's go from Yankee to Yankee. So that's kind of the origin of the name. There's not a quite, there's not a lot of Yankees left in Indiana. There's some up in the region, South Bend area, and the rest are here in Indianapolis. A funny story, I'm down doing great work in the community. And I ran into someone the first time ever who has the same last name as me. And obviously he was Caucasian and me and him had a chance to just have coffee. We find each other on LinkedIn and we have a running joke that we're cousins. So we take pictures together and we go places now. He's from Northwest Indiana as well. So it's a cool last name for sure. Yeah, that is definitely your cousin. And I'm sure anytime you find someone with that name, you're excited to say, we must be related somehow. Yes. Somehow. <laughs> Even we if must it's not through your bloodline, there's yes. still that that's still that connection. That's a great story to tell your children because I'm sure they're going to constantly be asked, hey, tell me about your last name. So it's great to know the origin of that. And yes, when I saw your name, I was expecting to see a white gentleman come in to walk through the doors. And I was like, oh, this is. I, yeah, I, I can tell so <laughs> many stories of how many times I walked in the interviews and their eyes opened up like, oh, Frederick. I'm like, yes, that's me. That was me on the phone you talking to. <laughs> yes. So um, the name alone is then when you see me, you're like, oh, wow, this is this this, this is Fred. So, yeah. 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 But it goes back to our assumptions. Right. And the things that we think about each other based on appearance or based on name. And we see a name and then we create a picture in our mind of who that person is. And we make all of these assumptions. So they received a nice surprise. I received a nice surprise, but it shouldn't have been a surprise, but yet and still it was. So let, let's get into it. Let's start on your path to education. How did Frederick get to where he is now to become this wonderful educator? What's your No, name? that's a great question. It's loaded. I, I did not come out of college. And I did not say in college or right after college that I wanted to be an educator. I think education chose me and I didn't choose it. And I say that because my undergraduate degree, as you said, is in public administration. And I had the wonderful thought and idea. Like most, I changed my degree in college two or three times. And I landed on public administration because I love the idea that they didn't put me in a box, that I can do multiple things with a lot of things. I love to talk. I love to meet people. But when I got in my first job or my second job after college, it was running an after-school program. It was right back in Indianapolis. I moved back home. And ironically, I fell in love with it. You know, I, I didn't, I never thought that I would 
be around at the time I call them children, kids. And I, I, I often said, I don't want to do anything with kids because my mother had a home daycare and I, I despised that they ate up all the snacks, the food. And here I go running an after school program. And I realized something that I was good at it. And I was good at it because I hated to see kids take being taken advantage of more than I loved working with them. And because I hated to see them taken advantage of, that gave me a level of connectivity that I loved. And it got to the point when I was running after school programs that it started, I started to get frustrated because a lot of the students that I was mentoring and working with looked like myself in terms of ethnicity. And I got tired of teachers who did not look like me telling students who look like me that what they could and couldn't do. And I think that's when it clicked in me. I said, I think I need to get inside of the schools so I can be a representative to show, hey, I came from these same neighborhoods and you can do anything if you put your mind to it. So I went an unconventional route. There was a program here in Indianapolis called Indianapolis Teaching Fellows where it's sponsored through an AmeriCorps grant and you can go back and get a master's of art in teaching. And I went through the program when I turned 30 years old or 28, 29, somewhere around, I can't remember. And I loved it. I mean, it just went to a whole nother level and I started teaching and fell in love with it. And just the rest is history. You know, I think that Dr. Joy and I can speak to that coming into teaching a a different route. I mean, we were both alternative certification type of pathways. It found us as well. Something I want I want to hear more about is what you saw as maybe some of the impact of students having teachers who look like them. You walked into the classroom, you said, I need to be here. I need to let students know I've had these same experiences. Did you see some impact? I mean, in terms of your relationship with the students after school? Absolutely. Some of the impact that I've seen, I guess I have to go back to when I was a student, right? Because so oftentimes as educators, we reflect on our past experiences, good or bad, to help shape how we want to be an educator. And I remember my first teacher that I had that was a male that was African-American was Mr. Williams. He was my second grade teacher. And I remember him. And I was telling someone, I said, it's amazing. You don't remember the teachers that weren't great but you remember the great ones all the time, right? And he impacted my life in a way that shaped all of what I do and how I am to succeed. So when I went into the classrooms, I thought of two people, Mr. Williams, my second grade teacher, and the last impactful teacher I had was not until I was in college. His name was Dr. Lucian Yates. He taught me how to wear a bow tie by teaching it to me, by putting it on my neck, and he, And Mr. Williams were the reasons why I wanted to go in education. And I said to myself, how many of these young people have ever been impacted by Mr. Williams or Dr. Yates? And I asked myself, how do they impact me? And every single one of them impacted me, but not just by being great instructionalists, but by the the intensity in which they care for me outside of instruction. They developed a level of trust and relationship. And I said, I want to be that teacher where in my in between my passing periods, I'm not going to close the door, but I'm going to go down there in the lunchroom and talk to people, even though I'm not teaching them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sing songs in the hallway. I'm going to make sure that I dress up because I want to show them that this profession um, is something I take seriously because they may not have someone in front of them that know how to dress up. Mm-hmm. And I want to do that and, and still keep the terminology that keeps me close to them and let them know that I'm not that much older than them, right? I didn't want to create this huge gap so I can be this mystical person that is old and I'll be like that Joe Clark, Mr. Lean on me. I want to be a different, I want to be a more modern Joe Clark, but I want to be someone that was cool. So that was something that was important to me. And I really wanted to stress relationships before I stretch curriculum. Because I knew that if I had relationships, my instruction would be a lot better. And that was my early key moments for success. You know, the reason that we wanted to have you on the show is because of all the wonderful things about your leadership style and all the things. And now I see where it comes from. 
and how this came to be. And it's the things that the impact that you're having and the legacy that you are leaving for these students. Talk more about your leadership style, how you communicate with your students, how you're managing even behavior in your style. Absolutely, absolutely. And thank you so much for that compliment. I think a lot of teaching that I've learned, it's much more art than it is science. I believe to be a great educator, and not just a teacher, but an educator is someone who is called into the work, which means that if I have a bad day, I'm going to come back because I know this is what I'm called to do. Like, I would do this whether I get a paycheck or not, right? And when you do it from that standpoint, I learned that you typically don't work hour to hour, nine to five. You come in early and you may stay late, whether you have a club that you over, whether you one of the coaches, or whether you're just making sure that you're grading papers and you're making your classroom a safe environment. So one of the styles that I've grown, I believe, in my leadership is the art of proximity. Uh, I think one of the challenges that we have in America today is that proximity is, is created much further than what it actually is. You can look at that from race. You can look at that from ethnicities. You can look at it from a lot of places. But one of the things that I wanted to do in my leadership style, in my classroom, and even when I lead schools, is close that proximity between the community and the school, right? Our students go and they live outside of the school. They involved in certain areas. They involved in certain places and spaces. They pick up things culturally. And all those things that these students are, they come and bring to your classroom. I often seen teachers take what these students have and they don't look at it as something of value. They look at it as something that they have to unlearn or they have to teach out of them. And I never wanted to take who these students were because who they were was who God made them to be. And their culture is a part of what's going to make them different. I believe that's what sets them apart with their personality. So I wanted to be more inclusive or more intimate in learning their culture and putting myself in that community so I can then make correlations and inferences to the lessons so now I can have them hooked, right? So I started to do that. And I never forget, I was teaching in a class that at the time it was an adult high school called the Excel Center. And my class had over seven different languages. And I had people from the Middle East. I had people from South America. I had people from uh, Southern places of the United States. And I was teaching math. And, you know, they say math is a universal language until you have someone teach you how to multiply differently. And you're like, that was cool. So I quickly learned that I'm not the teacher. I'm the student. And I made this a platform where we had on Fridays, I had a breakfast club because I knew that food, I enjoy eating food, but I knew that other people might enjoy eating food. And I said, how about we have a tutoring session where I will help lead peer tutors and everyone bring a potluck in and we have breakfast club. And that was so transformational because that allowed the community to come in. And when I was in regular school, I never forget this, 2009, I started teaching high school and I was struggling because I was losing all of my males, all of my males, I was losing the community. And, you know, they, they, they hated school, but when the bell rung, they never left school. And I was saying to myself, how do you hate school? But then you don't leave. And I said, I think they have a place. They don't have a place of belonging. So I went to the principal and I said, Hey, can I start a club called the barbershop in college? I learned how to cut hair because I, it was out of need and I needed money and I couldn't call home to mom. And I had a good friend who let me practice on his hair and I messed it up and he had to wear a hairband, but it wasn't that bad. So I had confidence. So I became a barber because I wasn't afraid to mess up and I loved it. So I asked if I could bring that skill set and start a club for these young men who don't want to play sports, who hate school, but they don't want to leave school. I got to find a way to hook them. And I started cutting hair, not because I just wanted to stay on my skill set. I had to cut hair because I needed to bring culture and community in my classroom. And something beautiful happened. I became this, this cool teacher that could command respect because I learned to give something away that was valuable on my own time after school when I wasn't paid for it. And then I made relationships and the students liked to look good. And I was like, wow, I think I have something. And my classroom 
became so much so much, so much well ran. I never had to call for any dean of supports. All of my students' grades went up. And that was what was so crazy to me that I did something that was not academically related, but then the academics were impacted. And that's when I realized that data doesn't drive data, culture does. So if we could just stop right there and just send this out to all of our student teachers, these this few minutes of what it takes to develop that classroom environment. It's not discipline, it's relationships. And like you said, I mean, there is power in breaking bread together. There is power in coming together around the table, eating, talking, communicating. And this proximity that you're talking about with the community and the school, but the barbershop became that individual proximity where you were closing the gap person to person. What, how did that then fall forward? Like, how did that come into your next role? What What are you doing now? Or how have you brought that forward? in your later mission as an educator? Absolutely. You know what? I, I, I tell you, and that's a great question. I, I, I learned that, and I think every educator should have their own definition of what is my philosophy of education. And as I continue to get into this work, I quickly realized that my philosophy of education or my vehicle of education is cutting hair. I'm a barber. And this happened to be an educator. And everywhere that I went in my educational journey, I can point it back to me cutting hair. When I left the classroom at my high school in 2009, 2010, I took that same idea of cutting hair and I said, I'm going to take it and I'm going to try it with adults. And when I tried it with adults, it was something similar, but it was a different response. I went from cutting the son's hair then I started to cut the father's hair. And then I started to learn that these dads had issues as they were coming back to learn to school. And then they had the same issues of wanting to learn the positivity of being a male and being proud of your image and learning how to tie a necktie. These were the same things, but now I'm talking to dads and now they're bringing their sons and now I'm cutting hair and now I'm educating them. And that same philosophy took me to when I was asked to help run a school and become an administrator as the dean of students. And I was like, okay, well, how can I take this philosophy and apply it to discipline? Because I don't think many people realize discipline is not always responsive and punitive, but but the true point of discipline is teaching. How can I use the barbershop as a teaching moment? I don't want to suspend these children and send them right back to that bad culture that they're learning it from. I want to use this barbershop as an alternative to suspension. So if you are going to be in trouble, mandatory after-school detention, you come to the barbershop. Then I started bringing guest speakers in and I started to cut their hair and I started to shape them. And I really got good at forming the character of the man that they can't see in the mirror, but they feel him every day. And that's when I realized if I can shape that person that drives emotions, that drives decisions, that can help them succeed or fail, I think I have something that's even more transformational. From there, cutting hair, the school discipline, I was in one of the worst schools in Indianapolis, getting students right from the juvenile detention center, and it was sparking it. From the barbershop, I asked the principal if I can start a parent club. We had some of the worst parental involvement, but I told the principal, I guarantee you, I can transform that. And when I started cutting the hairs of the children, the mothers began to call and thank me. Mm -hmm. Now I have a mother that wants to be included into the school. And I started making positive phone calls home. I started asking if I can help them with things. And then that parent and I became a partner. I wasn't looked at as an outsource or an issue. And then that same idea took me to a school called Providence Christian Ray, where I now serve as the vice president. And this is the transformational high school that started actually in the South Side of Chicago in 1995 and 96 with the idea of destroying poverty through the vehicle of faith and corporate work study and internships. 
where families who cannot afford private school experience can come, but you have to say, my student is going to work a job in corporate America. And then I took all of those same skill sets and I said, you know what? I think that the barbershop will work great here because these students are already trying to find a way out. And if I can add the character development and the positivity and how to talk, it's transformational. So I was cutting hair for 10 years, minding my business, being an educator. You know how we do. We just roll mm -hmm. our sleeves up. We don't need to thank right. you. Just right. give me an apple. Give right. me some coffee. And that's all I need. Well, someone caught word of me cutting hair. And it was at that moment when they came in with the news camera. I didn't think anything of it. I wanted the students to say, hey, look, look, tell your mom I'm on TV. I wanted it to be powerful. And something happened. I went viral. I was uh -huh. all around the country from California to Minnesota to Florida. My friends from college are saying, what are you doing on TV and newspaper articles all over the place? It went crazy. It was scary because I was just doing something that every educator does. But apparently that touched some hearts and lives of people. And then something even crazier happened. I went from being the dean of students and they asked me to be the president of the school. Now, 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 now mind you, this is a Catholic institution. I'm not Catholic. I'm just an educator. I just mm -hmm. want to serve. And I didn't know that there's never been an African-American president of a Catholic institution in Indiana. And here I go. All I want to do is cut hair and help save lives. And then I started leading. Then I started raising all this money. Then I began to bring more community together. And then I realized that the barbershop was never just intended for the students, but the barbershop is a microcosm of what every community needs that can create intersections where people can meet each other on a common need of trying to just do great things. And that's what is really beautiful to me because those students that I've cut hair, this is a true story. I'm on the phone. My job now as vice president is I go out into the community and I get corporate partners to see and to understand that K through 12 students need to be working in your institutions. And right. if you wait to college, it's too late. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I, I go out and I talk to that. And one of my corporate partners, it's a huge building here in Indianapolis. It's called One America. It's a national insurance company. I was talking to them and she was telling me that they're going to do it. I was so happy because it's been like five years in the making. And she said, wait a second, I want something. I have to tell you something. I said, sure, I'm on the phone with her. She said, my baby's father, my child's father has been telling me about this person that has changed his life 15 years ago. I said, really? She said, and he calls this person, Mr. Fred. I said, wait a second. She said, yes. And he came to pick up my daughter and he saw the folder of Providence Crystal Ray on the table. And he said, what are you doing there? He said, well, I'm working with getting one America there. She said, do you know that guy I told you, Mr. Fred, who changed my life is the reason why I graduated? The guy didn't have the school program is the reason why I went to the armed forces and the one that really saved my life. She said, yeah, that's Mr. Fred. She said, wait a second. <laughs> I thought this person was like 70 something years old because you talked about him for so long. You mean Mr. Yankee? And I would say, wait a second, who is he? When I started education as an after-school coordinator. That young man was one of the first ones in my barbershop program that I was able to talk to. And who would have thought when I'm out here in the community trying to reach and get corporate partnerships that his mother, the child's mother, is the reason why I now have access. And I changed his life and I had no idea. Wow. Those stories right there are the reasons that I'm so impactful. And I travel the country now. I do public keynote speaking. I'm an educational consultant. And everywhere I go, I just came from Dallas, Texas, and I tell every educator, never leave something that your creativity can help spark a revival. So and Fred, you said a lot. Like Fred, you said a lot there. And I want our educators to be able to hear some of the things that you said, because you know now we have a teacher retention problem. We have a teacher shortage. We all got into this because we wanted to have an impact. We wanted to make a difference. And then you find yourself in some tough situations and you've been into some in those schools where it's tough and you feel like, do I have, am I making a difference? Do I have the energy to do this? Do I have the right skill set to do this? And it can be a dark place sometimes. And then you start rethinking, is this the career for me? And unfortunately, some teachers leave. 
because everybody can't be a barber, right? No. You know, my husband, much like you, he was a professional athlete. When he became a teacher, he was able to take his sports with him. When he was, he was a coach and he was an officiator. So he had that mentorship, right? Because he was a coach and the kids were always in his classroom and he could get them to do their work, you know, because they wanted to make him happy and they wanted that camaraderie. And he cut hair and he did that for years. And on Friday, he would cut hair. And he did this because at that time, he worked in a school district that was so poor that the kids were coming to school unkept. And when you are not feeling good about yourself, your hygiene, you're not the kid raising your hand, you know, you no. just want to disappear. And so by changing their appearance and making them proud of themselves, they could now stand out. They can be part of the learning process. So it goes so much further. But here's something I want to get to for our teachers. We all have gifts, right? And it's a matter of finding what is that gift that you have that you can expand into mentorship, into sponsorship. For me, I have a gift of hospitality. Never knew and never did anything intentional about how is that going to impact me in the classroom. And it happens organically, right? When I started teaching, I have 40 non-English speaking students, eighth grade students. Wow. And one of the things I knew about my students because they were bused into my school. They were bused into a predominantly black school and they were in a bilingual building. And so they were always coming late. And I figured out real quickly that I could not teach them if they were hungry. And all I could do was buy a big box of Cheerios every week because I was a new teacher. And that's mm -hmm. all I could afford so that I could feed them. And feeding them went a long way because then I can keep them energized and engaged. And from there, I hosted teachers from out of the country. And then I hosted two college students for four years, international students, one from Colombia and one from Nepal. But that was from my gift, gift of hospitality, right? So yeah. I didn't have your skills. I didn't have my husband's skills. So teachers need to use the skills and the gifts that they have because we all have them. Yes. Because there's no surplus of, you know, <laughs> of no. mentorship and sponsorship. There's no, we need more mentorship and sponsorship. You know, we try to put programs together where at least one kid could have a mentor, but oftentimes, you know, it just doesn't work out that way. But every teacher has a gift. And, yeah. you know, we need to find ways to home into that, to share it, because it just makes the whole experience, like you said, so much greater where you're like, I can't believe I get paid for this. Oh my I'm God. actually having this impact and I can't believe that I get paid for this. When, talk about, did you make a conscious decision of mentoring or was it something that just happened? And it probably was in you all along and not just from your mentors, but also in how you were raised. Yes. I, Some, I, I was something say about you. And, you know, so did you make a conscious decision to do this or did it just happen? And you say, wow, because now the media, now people are telling you no. that you are a mentor. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? You said a lot. And I love how you brought out the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. And, I, and hopefully I can touch on that as I answer your question. So I, I never considered myself a mentor. It was something that I was raised as. I was blessed to have a mother and father. I grew up in the inner city. I grew up in church. And I believe the servicehood and the part of giving yourself for others makes, like I learned and I was taught and it's true. Like people who don't believe it, I, ask, I tell them to try it. You feel much better when you give than you do receive. I promise you. So my, my, my mom said, as y'all say, it's always better to give than to receive. And when I started to give and I saw the joy and the light bulb go off and people say, thank you, especially when I give them something that they couldn't afford or that they really need it. And I didn't really need it. I got addicted 
to the feeling of gratitude. And that addiction was something that drove me to find a career where I can do it for free, but I'll get paid for it. That's what changed my life. I'll never forget, Judge Mathis told someone once when he was on TV, and this person was really trying to say, I want to be like you. He said, well, don't do it if you want to get it for money, because it's going to be hard to quit. But you want to find something that you do for free every day, but someone to pay you for it. That's what you're called to do. And I learned that I'm called to be a servant. I'm called to give to others. I'm called to help make other people's lives great. And then I found out that I can get paid for this. And education mm-hmm. just happened to be one of those buckets. And as I got into education and service, I was blessed to go to an historically black college or university. And I never forgot that when I walked on campus the first time, there was a building called Carver Hall. And on outside of the building, it said something that I put on my classroom when I started to teach. On the door of the building, it said, enter to learn, go out to serve. And that was something that helped me to understand why I need to be an educator. Mm-hmm. You know, money is great, but money does not give fulfillment. And I know many people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars and they are not fulfilled and their lives are a testament of that. And education is one of the most fulfilling careers, one of the most careers that prolongs you, keeps you relevant. I know educators that are retired superintendents and they're back in the classroom and they're some of the sharpest minds and they're so happy and they're so relevant. Like, I don't want to just retire and live on a boat. I want to give and I want to help make the next generation better. So that mentorship was something that was in me as a child and I got addicted to younger. And when I went to college, I just said I had to do something. And what I had to do, I wasn't going to sit around and complain. I knew that I had something internally that I could give away that somebody could be happy about. And mine was cutting hair. Yours was hospitality. And I often teach workshop to educators. And I say, what's in your bag? Right. What's that one thing that you enjoy doing that you can share with others and they can read from? My other bag is cooking. I don't believe that many people can cook better than me. I just have that much confidence. <laughs> I cook. And I love to cook because I like the faces that people have. Another we have to ask Miss Danielle about that. Oh, yeah. Listen, <laughs> ask her. And she said, I don't compete no more. She just likes, loves to eat. But 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 those are the things that service have gotten to it. And I, and I guess that's what I, I, I moved from. Because as a mentor, I've been blessed to have people who wanted to mentor me. And I call myself a mentor. But recently in the last four years, I've been challenging myself and those who want to be my mentor to be a sponsor. And a sponsor is a little bit different than a mentor. A sponsor is someone who has a privilege and they're willing to share it with you. And if I have a privilege and if I know that you don't have that privilege, my job as a sponsor is to use my name, image, and likeness, and sometimes capital that you don't have to make sure you can be in places and that your name will be in places where your feet have yet to walk. Oh, and that's I what I want to be. I love that. Amy and I, we were talking earlier this morning about sponsorship and, you know, she was aligning sponsor- sponsorship with money. Like you, I have a strong church background and the pastor used to always give us all the teas, right? Your tithes, you know, your offering time and talent. So I learned pretty quickly that my sponsorship doesn't always have to take place in the form of money, but I can do my sponsorship in my time and in my talent. And yes, you spend some money. Hosting students costs money. But yes. it wasn't like I felt like I was giving a donation while I was shelling out money. You know, it was incremental enough and it was rewarding enough. Being uh, sponsoring international students and having them live with you and taking care of them and being responsible for them, it did more for me and my children than it did for them. So it was like my children had an opportunity to go to Nepal, Nepal and to Colombia, yes. you know, because they had those experiences in our home. So it is very gratifying when we do these things of mentorship and sponsorship. It is. It's life changing. 
And as you said, it's really a form of education that you are now gifting yourself and your family to. Because mm-hmm. now you are learning what you don't know. We are talking to Fred Yankee about servant leadership, mentorship, sponsorship, and how enriching really it is to be an educator because we can do it all. All of it is part of our job. Now, when we talk about the teacher shortage, we're trying to get new teachers into the classroom as much as possible. And new teachers and new administrators, as you know, are often assigned to assume additional duties as assigned. That's always that. Here's this 10% of your job is additional duties as assigned. What would you recommend to a new teacher or or a new administrator of how they can lend their time to move students forward when they are not standing in front of the students inside the classroom? No, that's 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 a, that's a great question. And I, I would like to say that one of my suggestions would be for every new teacher or even a new administrator, right? This is there's a lot of things that go into that. You have to give yourself grace, right? I think one of the things that we have to be comfortable with is the ability to fail, but do not feel like a failure. That failing is a part of the process of growing. And if you fail properly, you can educate others that it's okay to fail and to try. And I think being transparent and removing ego and removing this sense of if I fail, I can't show people I'm a failure, I'm not a leader, is really something that we have to disrupt because if you remove that line, you find that stress is in that line as well. And when you are transparent and, hey, listen, guys, I made a mistake. I thought it was this, but I learned something from it. That's a lot better than trying to overcompensate and making yourself appear as an expert when there's no such thing as an expert, this is people that are comfortable in failing and learning. So that's my first piece of advice that I learned as an early teacher and an administrator, that when you lead people, even young students, every see, and, and, and that's one thing I believe, every teacher, every educator is a leader because you're leading someone. You might be a kindergarten teacher, you're leading these young future minds, you might be a principal, you, you know, so when you have that ability and you teach that failure is a part of the process, it really removes a level of that. The second thing that I would certainly suggest is that try to incorporate what relaxes you, what is your hobby, into what your curriculum or instruction can be. If you can merge a hobby, something you enjoy doing, and find a way that others can maybe benefit or be exposed to that, that would help to relieve stress while you were there at work. So my hobby was cutting hair. Mm -hmm. I began to bring that in. My hobby was cooking food. I began to bring that in. And then other people can enjoy it. And then it's a safe place. It's a place that's not having energy. Because, you know, you can walk into any school building. And when I walk into any building around the country, when I'm doing consulting work, I walk in there and I can tell them before you ever open your mouth, before you ever introduce me, I can tell what the culture and climate is of the building and classroom because you feel it. I can see it. Mm -hmm. And when I have an opportunity to talk to these wonderful teachers and educators and principals, I say you have to create that culture and climate by bringing in what really inspires you. So it can inspire other. I think a lot of people might not think in those terms. Well, my hobby might be mm-hmm. maybe my practice is yoga. How can I bring that into the school? Why not have those kinds of opportunities? And I don't think people are recognizing their hobbies or their talents as being able to merge with curriculum. But it's so powerful to see a barbershop being brought in as part of that hobby, you know, cooking, part of that hobby that you can bring into the educational climate because it does change the culture. And that's what we need to do. Yes, it does. It does. And I hope that we can simplify teaching and instruction practices by making it more 
make it more natural, right? Yeah, and, I like and, that. And, yeah. and make it natural. We can't quantify human behavior because we deal with human behavior. We have to bring in things that humans do and find enjoyment and did align that to that. So it is my hope that this practice and these things can even help revitalize educators who feel like they're depleted, who feel like, you know what, there's no more. If I look at more standardized tests, if I have to do one more, if, if, if you only look at that and you don't balance it with this, it's easy to become very one-sided and you will leave a profession that once gave you joy because now it takes away your joy. Yeah, I think when you're talking, I was thinking about my, about my daughter who's been teaching for 12 years now. Can't believe wow. it. Congratulations. <laughs> 12 years and she teaches third grade this year she's teaching sixth grade so she's like oh I have to convince them that I am the master of this universe she said she's like she's been teaching third grade all this time and now she has to teach sixth grade and but she's like I am going to rock their world you know because she still loves teaching she said I am the master of the universe and three things she loves she loves Harry Potter Mm. she loves baking and she's a singer. So she's already transformed their mm. space into Harry Potter. So when they walk in, you know, they're walking into a whole life-size thematic classroom. And she's like, they have to read these Harry Potter books. So whatever she's reading, these sixth graders have to read. She say, that's okay. You know, I had to pretend with my third graders, but now the sixth graders, they can actually read this. So she's going to make sure they bake. She's going to incorporate music into her classroom. So she's going to take all the wonderful things, the things that make her happy, and she's going to use them as teaching tools. And like you said, the students will remember how you made them feel. And those are the things that will make them want to come to school. And you don't have to worry about classroom management, so to speak when students are happy and they're engaged and they want to be there. So this is great for, I mean, current teachers. It's not just, this message is not just great for new teacher candidates, but it's great for any seasoned teachers because we all, sometimes we hit a wall. Yes. And then we need some motivation. We need a refresher. So I do want to talk about kind of the next chapter of your life. And as well as being an author with your other many talents, and you do have a lot of talents. I mean, you're doing this mentorship, the sponsorship, you're an administrator, but you also have a family and you're doing things outside of the school and you're making it all work. And now you're adding this piece to your resume. So tell us about what you're writing, what you're doing right now and what we can anticipate. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And thank you both for the opportunity and the wonderful platform you're providing. It's very necessary, and I appreciate your gifting. So what's next in my life is is I am now writing a book. Um, I am writing a book about my experiences as an educator, an educator that teaches through cutting hair. And I hope that in this book, one of the main topics I want to bring out is that my gifting was cutting hair, but every teacher has a spirit of creativeness that you have to pull your creativeness and make your lesson plans alive. It has to move from a plan to action. So I want to kind of pull out of that book some shared experiences and some best practices. And I hope that this book that I write in conjunction with the workbook can be utilized not only across the country, but hopefully can spark young students to fall into the career of being an educator. We have a significant issue in many areas in corporate places and particularly workforce development. And I really want to focus and strengthen not only a pipeline, but develop a pool of educators that want to grow up and say, I want to be like her. I want to be like him. And I want to be an educator. So that's one part. The other part is that I'm getting to more of what I believe I'm called to do as well as I love to talk. So keynoting and traveling around the country, going to colleges and universities, conferences, and also corporate spaces, talking to these same individuals that are human beings that just need to be reminded that I'm not an accident and I have something there. So I have a website, frederickyakey.com, where those who want to find out more about me, they can come, they can book me 
And I love talking to young educators and sparking up an idea of revival and reinstitution of your purpose and just being a great dad. My wife just turned 39 yesterday, celebrating her. My babies are doing great things. I have a six-year-old first grader. I have an 11-year-old who's a sixth grader, and my son is two. So just being a father and being present and engaged is really important in my life as well. Wow, that's a lot going on. Do we have a title for this book yet? You know what? I am still going back and forth with the title, but I don't know yet. I don't know so, yet. I, so I, I don't know if I want to release it. put it out there as a contest, maybe you should put it out there as a contest because I have several things going through my mind. So maybe okay. you put I'm it out there as a contest. And I'm sure people that know you well can come up with some very appropriate and creative names. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a good idea. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to challenging it and getting this out of me so we can hopefully continue to move down that path. Well, I look forward to reading it and I'm hoping that we can have some more conversations because I feel like we have only tapped the surface and there are so many nuggets that in this one conversation that I hope new future and seasoned educators can take away. Uh, thank you so much for everything you are out there doing and for being with us today. Thank you. Fred, very much. Thank you, Frederick. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory probably this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy. And Dr. Joy. <laughs>